Open your Bibles, if you would, to Revelation chapter 21. We're going to look at verses 9 through 27 in that fantastic chapter. Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 through 27. The topic, John is given a tour of the new Jerusalem within which Jesus is building our eternal homes. The title of our message, there is a house in new Jerusalem being built by the risen sun. Some things never get old. Let's pray. Father, thanks for our morning. <laughs> we appreciate, Lord, the opportunity to be here with a measure of health you've given us. We've come in, though, Lord, with, um, with sicknesses, with fears, with oppressions. Some of us, Lord, with sin. We know that this is a place where you can take a, a look at us and reveal ourselves to us so that we can draw closer to you, so that we can fall in love with you over and over and over again. Maybe we've drifted from our first love. Use this text, Lord, that's so much about your love for us to draw us back into a really tight relationship with you. Help us, Lord, to yield to the ministry of your spirit here in this place this morning. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. It's back to school time, so I thought we'd begin with a math problem. If on average one human being takes up a space two feet by two feet by six feet, how many cubic feet does a person occupy go? Who said 24? You get, you're a gold member. We each occupy about 24 cubic feet of space. Now here's something a little bit more challenging. In the year 2000, when the Earth's population hit 6 billion, how many cubic miles would it have taken... What? Oh, the Reese's are going for it this morning. How many, okay, let me start over. This is, I'm serious about this. Here's, uh, in the year 2000, the Earth's population hit 6 billion. How many cubic miles would it have taken to fit everyone on planet Earth? Just take a wild guess in your heart. Everyone on Earth would have fit in one cubic mile. Here's why. One cubic mile is 147,197,952,000 cubic feet. If you divide by 24, you get 6,133,248,000. So it would have been room to spare. Now, granted, kids take up less room, but most of us take up more room. Uh, but so, and you'd be a little bit cramped, but it's an interesting graphic to think that everybody on Earth, 6 billion people, could literally fit into a cubic mile. The math gives us a perspective on our topic this morning. In our text, the heavenly city, New Jerusalem, comes down from heaven. It measures not one mile in every direction, but about 1,400 miles in every direction. That comes out to 2.06 times 10 to the 14th power cubic feet. I can't really fathom a number that big, so let's dumb it down. If the city had 20 billion residents, which is about three times the current population of the earth, each person would have a cube of space that is 75 acres in every direction. It's massive. You know one thing that tells us? A lot of people have gotten saved 
and many more will get saved before that city makes its dramatic appearance. And by the way, mathematicians calculate that about 108 billion people have ever lived on the earth. While all that is super interesting, it isn't the emphasis that the Holy Spirit puts on this appearance of the New Jerusalem. He focuses first on you, then on Jesus. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you will inhabit your mansion in the New Jerusalem. And number two, Jesus will illuminate the universe from the New Jerusalem. Let's take a look first of all at inhabiting your mansion in verses 9 and 10. Jesus promised his disciples, including you and I, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. That's, of course, John 14, verse 2. Some scholars and certain translations of the Bible substitute words like abiding places or rooms or dwelling places for the word mansions. You might have a Bible that uses some other uh, word for mansions. Those words are all possible translations. So is that what we're going to have in heaven? A room? I remember recently, or not recently, it was quite a while ago, but we were down in San Bernardino, Gene and I, for an anniversary of the church down there, and we decided we'd go to Motel 6. Who remembers why they originally named Motel 6 Motel 6? Because the rooms were $6.95. Those rooms are still worth $6.95. Uh, <laughs> There we were in Hospitality Lane in San Bernardino at the Motel 6. I knew we were in trouble when the uh, attendant was behind bulletproof glass. Uh, and then in the gift shop, they only sold uh, Ant Roach Killer. But uh, anyway, that's not true. The second part's not true, but it should have been. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so is that what we're going to have? A room? Well, if you're not convinced you'll have a mansion after this morning, then you're just not listening. And so let's get into it. Verse 9, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and said, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. Now this angel retired as a bowl pourer into a second career as a tour guide in the New Jerusalem. And that tells me that we must remain flexible serving the Lord. And it sounds funny, but it's true. God has gifted each of us in unique ways. But ministry isn't always about getting to exercise my gift or gifts the way I would like to. It's about doing what the Holy Spirit directs you to do, minute by minute and day by day. And so it's great to do an inventory of your gifts, to know how God you know, uh, has gifted you or wants to use you and that. But you can't pass up opportunities to serve the Lord in other ways uh, while you're waiting for your gift to come to fruition. And so be flexible. Um, and if you're retiring or retired, you always retire into greater work and service for the Lord, not less. You're always doing more for the Lord uh, because there's, if you're growing in the Lord, there's less of you and more of Him, and He is all about reaching people. Now, the bride, the Lamb's wife, that's the church. It's comprised of all those who were saved from the birthday of the church on the day of Pentecost up until the rapture of the church. After that, uh, the church is complete. There are no more members of the church. Verse 10, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain, showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. You're never told that the new Jerusalem is on the earth. It doesn't uh, come down and land. 
It seems to hover over the earth. The new recently created eternal earth is like a satellite of the new Jerusalem, not vice versa. We tend to think of, of the earth and the sun and all of that. In the new heavens and the new earth, it seems like the new Jerusalem is going to be the center and everything is going to revolve, as it were, around it. Now, people get confused because the angel said he'd show John the bride, but what follows is a long description of the city. Well, the solution is simple, really. When the New Jerusalem descends from heaven to earth, the bride is already living in it. And so the angel says, let me show you the bride. Here she comes now in her city. John sees the New Jerusalem. He sees the bride living in community, enjoying eternity in this great city. By describing the city... He's letting us know that we will all one day be home safe in it. Now, I don't think it's unspiritual to look forward to your mansion. Uh, it's become popular, just like some of the Bibles are translating mansion, dwelling place, or abiding place, or room. It's become pos uh, popular for Christians who teach the Bible to kind of downplay this mansion aspect of it as if it's too materialistic. And we're just happy to be in heaven. We're not really looking forward to a mansion. It's just whatever God has for us, it's going to be fantastic. I think that um, that sounds spiritual. I mean, when you hear that, you think, oh, yeah, okay. I, yeah, I just, I just want to humble myself as a servant. You know, if God just gives me a cot over in the corner, I'll be super happy with that. But it's absolutely unspiritual, and, and here's why. Jesus has gone to prepare you a glorious mansion to enjoy. And I know, I don't know about you, but if I worked for a long time on a special project for somebody that I loved and tried to give it to them and they said, yeah, I don't want that. I'll just get something at Walmart. I don't think I'd be too pleased. And so I don't think it's unspiritual at all to look forward to your mansion. If for no other reason, it is a gift. It's being custom crafted to the most minute detail by the one who loved you so much that he died for you while you were yet a sinner and an enemy of God. We know that the creation, everything we call the universe right now, was spoken into existence by God, special creation. We know, too, that Jesus was the creator because we read this in the book of Colossians. It says, For by him, speaking of Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether they're thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus Christ, creator of the universe. Regarding the New Jerusalem and your mansion, does Jesus simply speak it into existence? Well, he certainly can, but does he? Well, he said to us he was leaving to prepare a place for us. His immediate followers, all of them Jews, would have understood that he was comparing his departure and his return to the Jewish wedding customs of the day. There's no other way to understand these words. The bridegroom would be away, preparing the home that the couple would live in, and once it was finished, he would return suddenly and secretly and without warning to take her there. I therefore humbly suggest that Jesus is working on your mansion by hand. I think that he is constructing it rather than creating it. After all, he was a carpenter by trade, and now he's resurrected in his glorified human body. 
a first century Jewish carpenter was more than what we normally think of as a carpenter. The Greek word describing the trade is tekton, and it includes a master builder, a master stonemason, and someone skilled in metal technologies. And so Joseph, uh, and imparting this trade to Jesus, Jesus was a master builder. He could build anything. You know, you know guys like that? Or gals like that? I guess I want to be across the board. I don't want to get accused of anything. You know, people like that, they can just build anything. You give them a couple of matchsticks, and the next thing you know, they've, you know, they've put up wallpaper or something. They figured out how to unravel it, and it's just beautiful. It's, of course, it's not flame retardant, but it's beautiful. But, uh, yeah, and there are people, and, and there are some master builders, and, and there's maybe, you know, most of us live in old homes or tract homes, but, you know, you, you're familiar with custom homes that have real craftsmanship and workmanship and, and all of that kind of, our church, beautifully crafted. You know, I love the church. Don't you love the church? They don't build churches like this anymore. Everybody meets in a, in a warehouse now. You know, and, and, and that's okay too. You know, we were going to meet in a warehouse until God opened the door for us to buy this. And what a beautiful, crafted building this is. And we should appreciate that. Well, Jesus is not only, you know, was he the creator of the universe, then he learns a trade from his stepdad and is a master builder. And he says, hey guys, I'm going to go and prepare a mansion for you. Do you really think he's talking about a cot over in the corner? Hey, I'm ready. I've been busy up here. You're going to have to take what you can get. That's not the Jesus I know. So you say, well, listen, he doesn't have time to work on each mansion personally. It's going to be like a tract. Calvary tract over here, Baptist tract over here. No, it's not going to be like that at all. Romance always finds time to express itself to the person that's loved. Jesus' love for you is the greatest romance of all time. And so he's, uh, he who is outside of time is going to put in the time to each one of us to custom craft a mansion. I am excited about that, and our part is to stay excited about that. And when somebody tells me, oh, you're going to go to heaven, and, and you'd just be so happy to be there, it won't matter. what you, uh, That tends to make me not as romantically inclined as I ought to be towards Jesus. You ladies, I'll put this on the lady, on the men, because we're bucketheads, but when your husband comes home on your anniversary with a card and flowers from Save Mart, well, maybe that's a big thing for you, but that's not as thoughtful as it could be, because he was passing Save Mart anyway. And, and you don't think that for a year, you don't think that if your anniversary is next July, that your husband is thinking about going to Save Mart right now to get you a card and some flowers. And if he is, you need to start giving him hints or watch romantic movies or something because you're going to be disappointed when your anniversary comes around. And so Jesus, he's going to love us uh, in such a way that, that we're going to, to have a mansion and we're going to be excited about it. So get excited about that. Don't let anybody dumb that down for you. Now, in the remainder of the chapter, Jesus will illuminate the universe from this new Jerusalem. The newspaper article said, Men fell on their knees, groans were uttered at the sight, and many were dumb with amazement. That was the reaction of the residents and witnesses who were present to watch Wabash, Indiana, become the first town in the world to illuminate the night with electric lights in the year 1880. 
Whether it's Hong Kong or New York, Seoul or Chicago, Paris or Vegas, we've come a long way illuminating the night. But all of our cities combined at night are less than a match light compared to the illumination of the New Jerusalem. In verse 23, we are told that Jesus is the light source. The city will be constructed in such a manner that the light of Jesus Christ will reflect throughout it and then through it to the rest of the new universe. Verse 21, or chapter 21, verse 11. Having the glory of God, her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Precious jewels and gems are going to be the construction materials throughout. They have the correct properties needed to reflect the light of God to every part of the new heaven and the new earth. The whole city is like a precious gem. It's overall likened to a jasper stone. Now, the modern jasper is a multicolored quartz stone. The stone referred to here can't be that, for this stone is not opaque. Jasper is a transliteration of a word which is of Semitic origin, and Greek scholars and Hebrew scholars suggest that the word could mean opal or diamond or topaz. And so it's a Semitic word that could mean any one of those gems. The stone described is transparent and gleaming, so we would think that it's most likely describing a diamond in this setting. Verse 12. She had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Here we see more retired angels. These are serving as honor guards in their second career. The gates have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Talk about symbolism. It was literally through Israel that you and I were able to enter eternity. The gospel was to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. It was because the Jews rejected Jesus that the gospel was opened up to the Gentile world. And so we owe Israel a great debt. And it was through the king of the Jews that the whole world is offered salvation. Now I mentioned last time we were together that believers other than the church would also reside in the New Jerusalem. A passage in the book of Hebrews in chapter 12 distinguishes between two groups of residents in the city. First it says there are those who are the general assembly and church of the firstborn. That's a direct reference obviously to the church. As I said, those from the day of Pentecost until the rapture. And then there are those called the spirits of just men made perfect. That's a reference to Old Testament saints justified by faith before Jesus came. Men like Abraham who looked forward to the city whose builder and maker was God. And so it appears that the residents of the New Jerusalem will be the church and what we call Old Testament saints. Uh, verse 14. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. After Judas betrayed Jesus and hung himself, there were only 11 apostles. Who was the 12th? Well, in the book of Acts, they cast lots and they picked Matthias. Some scholars say it was God's intention for Paul to be the 12th apostle. So the, the theory is that Peter is an idiot, didn't know what he was doing, didn't know what he was talking about, panicked because they didn't have 12 apostles. They picked two guys who met the qualifications and they cast lots and they picked Matthias and that the whole time the Holy Spirit was shaking his head saying, can you just wait until I save Paul? 
because he's really the twelfth apostle. However, the weight of biblical evidence favors Matthias. After he was chosen, the Holy Spirit refers to the group as the twelve, not the eleven and some other guy. And so the Holy Spirit gives his approval to that whole process by calling that group of men the twelve. And so you and I can look for Paul's name all day in the New Jerusalem, but Matthias is going to be there. And so we think, is it really possible the great Apostle Paul will not have his name commemorated in the city on a stone? Yeah. And what a lesson to us about how to not interpret the Bible. Because you and I, we look at it and we think, well, of course Paul was the 12th apostle. Look at all he did. Look at all he suffered. Look at what he accomplished. Look at his greatness. God has to reward that. He was intended to be the 12th guy. And here we are Christians saying that, putting a premium on things that are really kind of worldly when you think about it. It's not going to be a matter of who saved the most people or who had the most stripes or, or any of that. God has his own way of dealing with our hearts. We need to humble ourselves and think, hey, if God wants to have Matthias, a guy we've never heard of and didn't do anything in the book of Acts, as one of the twelve, then praise the Lord. And I don't think Paul will have a problem with this, do you? Not if you've read some of the things that he's had to say about being the chief of sinners and the least of the apostles. So Paul says of himself, I am the least of the apostles. And scholars say, oh no, he's the greatest apostle. So much so that we're going to say that the word of God might not have gotten this right. So let's be careful with these kinds of things. Verse 15, and he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates and its walls. Now the angel moonlights as a surveyor. So not only does he have a second career, he moonlights. These guys do whatever they're tasked with. It's a great example to us. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. He measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs, or about 1,400 miles. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. The New Jerusalem's length, height, and width are equal. This means that it is either a cube or a pyramid. I think those are the only two mathematical uh, possibilities. A cube is reminiscent of the holy place of the tabernacle and the temple, suggesting that the entire city is the new holy place. When we see later on that there's no temple in it, the idea is that the city itself with Jesus in it is a, a, a temple. John mentioned that the cubit measure of an angel is the same as for a man. This answers the burning question about whether we'll use the metric system in heaven. I know you worry about that being Americans, refusing to learn the metric system, making the rest of the world use our system. Uh, that's the American way. Apparently, we will use Bible weights and measures. And so we'd better familiarize ourselves with the span and the talent and especially the omer, my favorite Old Testament weight. Um, verse 18, the construction of its wall was of jasper. The city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, uh, the sixth sargius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh hyacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. 
amazing, vibrant colors will be produced as light passes through these various gems throughout the city and the universe. Pure gold is said to be like clear glass. In verse 21, we're going to read that the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. As for pure gold being transparent, I came across this bit of trivia from NASA because people say that gold, even in its purest form now, cannot be transparent. Well, the visor, this is a quote, the visors of astronaut space helmets receive a coating of gold so thin that it is partially transparent. The astronauts can see through it, but even at that thinness, the gold film reduces glare and heat from sunlight. Which I was thinking, by the way, it's a good thing they had somebody on this visor problem when they sent people out into outer space or their spacewalks would have been pretty short if they didn't think, oh, my eyes. <laughs> I mean, Ray-Bans aren't going to do it out there, you know. So anyway, um, pure gold. And plus, it, a lot of these things, you know, you've, you don't really have to prove that pure gold can be transparent. It's fun to do that. But if God says he's going to make pure gold transparent, then he is. Uh, and we believe him. Verse 21, the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Forget the giant pearls. Where are the oysters that created them? <laughs> A couple of the guys texted me during service when I got to this point, and they said, they're on the barbecue at the wedding feast. <laughs> oh, man. We talk about pearly gates and streets of gold, but there appears to be only one street of gold in the city. No cul-de-sacs or dead ends. I want to concentrate, though, on the building materials. They are all precious gems and minerals. What do you think about that? I've heard it said that gold will be so common it is being used as asphalt. And though that's true, and that's one way of looking at it, again, let me ask you this. What do we do today with precious stones and gold? Or better yet, what do wives want their husbands to do with them? Now, there's a lot of other uses for gold and gems, I know. But normally, we think in terms of rings, wedding rings, engagement rings. They are in the jewelry that we give to the one that we love. Remember, we saw the city described as a diamond overall. The new Jerusalem is a diamond in a gold setting as the singular transparent street ribbons its way through it. This city is like a huge ring, only instead of wearing it, it will surround the bride. Extravagance is a trait of romantic love. You want to be able to give your loved one something amazing. It's not because you're materialistic, it's because you're romantic. Things that have value when they're given to the one you love show that you care more about him or her than all the things in the world. If you could, you'd give your loved one the world because the one you love has more value to you than everything valuable in the world. If you are Jesus, you can give your beloved everything. And that is what's symbolized in the extravagance and opulence of the New Jerusalem. Cities aren't usually notable for what's not in them. The New Jerusalem will be notable for something that is not in it. There will not be a temple of any kind in it. Verse 22, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The sense I get of John's statement, I saw no temple, is that he was looking for one. The temple at Jerusalem had been a focal point in his life. For many years he had visited it at least twice annually as he was required by Jewish law. From his knowledge of the millennium, 
gained from his reading the scriptures and from the revelation he had received about the future, John was aware that there would be a magnificent temple on the earth during Jesus' thousand-year reign. The lack of a temple now in the New Jerusalem in eternity would have been a stunning realization for John, stunning in a good way because he was immediately inspired to understand that the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. You understand the tabernacle and the temple are the center of Jewish life. And they will be again in the millennium. And then all of a sudden in eternity there is no temple and the conclusion a spiritual person comes to is that's because we don't need one anymore because the Lord is our temple. The temple was only a place he sought to dwell with us and that's what he's doing now. Verse 23, city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it for the glory of God illumined it, illuminated it. Rather, The lamb is its light. We wish sometimes there was more of a description of eternity, but really we can't understand it. I mean, can you fathom an earth with no sun or moon? The physics of it are really beyond us. We, we can't understand. God has granted us the ability through what we call science to know some things about his creation. When we start talking about the new Jerusalem and the new earth and the new heavens and there's no sun or moon, what does that even mean? How do, you, how do you null that out and figure out what that's going to be like? We just have to take it by faith. Since God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all, and since Jesus is the light of the world, it would not do for there to be darkness or night in the New Jerusalem. The bottom line, the New Jerusalem is constructed in such a way that in eternity, the light of the glory of God in Jesus Christ is sent through it to the entire universe. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. The earth below the hovering New Jerusalem will still have nations and kings. Who are these earth dwellers? There are a lot of crazy theories I won't bore you with. The word for nations describes Gentiles. Now, a Gentile is anyone who's not a Jew. From the Bible's point of view, God's chosen people, the Hebrew people, the Jews, and then everyone else is a Gentile. It's not derogatory. It's just that's the way it is. The New Jerusalem will be populated by the church and by saved Israelites who we call Old Testament saints, but there will also be multitudes of saved Gentiles who are neither members of the church nor Jews. For example, there will be multitudes saved during the tribulation, multitudes of Gentiles saved during the tribulation and then again in the millennial kingdom after the church has been raptured. So they are not members of the church and they are not Jews, but they are gloriously saved. They will be the kings and the nations of the earth and live on the new earth. They will inhabit this property. They're in no way second class. Uh, be, being a part of a different group in eternity doesn't make you less loved or uh, second class in any way. Uh, but this, who, that's who they are. Verse 25, its gates shall not be shut at all by day. Uh, there shall be no night there. Shutting the gates of a city were for its protection from enemies and intruders. None of those will exist in eternity. The open gates will be a constant reminder of the blessedness of our mutual fellowship. Even today, you still refer to some communities as a place where people don't have to lock their doors. 
Sadly, you usually hear that expression in the past tense after something awful just happened in a place where people never used to have to lock their doors. That's a standard interview after some tragedy in some remote area. We never had to lock our doors before. Okay. And, and that's sad, but that's the world we live in. We live in an evil world. And just because, by the way, just because you live in some remote area or some small town, it doesn't mean terrible things can't happen there, because they do. Secondly, these gates are beautiful. They're beautiful architectural marvels that enhance the extravagance of the city. We enhance buildings, don't we? Your house is enhanced in, in some way. Your house doesn't have to have a curb appeal. It could just be sitting on, a, on dirt, uh, on a slab, with just the, some kind of stucco. You don't have to have trim on it that makes it look nice. You could have the ugliest house in the world, and it could be functional, but then your neighbors would be upset. And so we spend a lot of time and money adorning our house, and, and so the Lord does the same in eternity. He adorns. And besides that, you remember they're to be made of pearl, not just of many pearls, but the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each individual gate one pearl. You can't help but think of the parable of the pearl of great price. Jesus told it while he was on the first century earth. In it, a wealthy merchant shopping for pearls found a magnificent pearl. He sold everything to purchase that one pearl. In the parable, the merchant is Jesus and the church is the pearl. He did indeed pay a great price for us, a king's ransom, we would say. He died on the cross and ransomed us from sin and death. And so the pearly gates are a constant reminder of the Lord's love for his bride. Verse 26, they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. When folks go somewhere, they often bring back something with them as gifts that represent the place they visited. Macadamia nuts or pineapple from Hawaii are favorites, right? Although you'd be better off bringing back Kona coffee. Just make a note of that. <laughs> Whatever it is that the nations produce during eternity will be brought up to the new Jerusalem and enjoyed, and uh, it will reveal the glory and the honor of those nations and their inhabitants. Verse 27, but there shall be no means any... Uh, but there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. All who enter or exit will have been fully and finally conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We will have free will that is incapable of sin and rebellion. Again, something else that we can't fathom. Free will that is incapable of sin or rebellion and yet absolutely free. Anything or anyone who might defile has been permanently removed and sentenced to the lake of fire. There's no escape and they can never enter the city or walk upon that earth. What an encouragement that finally, in the end, only those who love the Lord will be in community together. Tell them I'm busy, please. There are seven references to the book of life in the Revelation. Hello? <laughs> My take on the book of life is that it is the census of every person ever conceived. Those who reach an age and an understanding that can reject Jesus Christ and then die without him as their savior, they will have their names blotted out, deleted from the book of life. In the end, in eternity, it contains only the names of the saved 
And then it will bear the name of the one who saved them. It will be the Lamb's book of life. Perhaps it's given to Jesus to cherish as a memento of his work of redeeming those that it lists. In eternity, Jesus is going to illuminate the universe. The current earth, it's subject to darkness. And by that I mean a terrible spiritual darkness. Colossians 1.13 mentions a kingdom of darkness. Acts 26.18 describes salvation by saying, you turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that you may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus Christ. And then Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 says, there are principalities and powers who rule over this present darkness. And so you and I are brought into the kingdom of light, the knowledge of God through Jesus Christ, but we remain in a kingdom of darkness surrounded by a spiritual darkness. It's a spiritual combat zone, and that's why I can liken it to you having night vision goggles. You can see your enemies. You can see the path in front of you. You have insight and wisdom and biblical knowledge. You can stay on the path God has set before you. And you have the gospel to share. It's like a burst of light in the eyes of those accustomed to the dark. Some will be drawn to it, while others will withdraw from it, loving their darkness and the dirty deeds done there. Jesus once said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. You can walk in that light now, through this present darkness, and then forever when Jesus will illuminate the universe. It's God's will for every one of us and for everyone, really. And we've seen that there's plenty of room in this new Jerusalem. But you need, in the end, to be written in the Lamb's Book of Life in order to have an address there along its street of gold. If you're not a believer, your name is in there now, but it won't remain in there unless you come to personal faith in Jesus Christ. Your name will have to be blotted out because you've rejected the Lord. And so we believe that God, by His Holy Spirit, ministers to the heart by His grace coming before, freeing your will so that you can make a decision to receive or reject Jesus Christ. If you're not a believer this morning, that's why you're here. That's why you're here, is to respond to that grace, either to uh, give into it or to resist it. But it's your decision inspired by God the Holy Spirit, freeing your will to make it. If you're not a believer this morning, we pray that you would come to know Christ, that you would confess your sins, repent of them, come to the cross, realizing that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Come to the cross. Come to Jesus. Let's pray together.